0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I am, of course, not by myself because there's no way I could possibly imagine doing this show alone. I am here with the lovely, talented, and brilliant Dr. Shiloh. Hi, Dr. Shiloh.
1: That's me. No, you could completely do this by yourself, by the way.
0: No, I couldn't. (laughs) I wouldn't start laughing at my own jokes. I mean, I am right. so close to falling for my own bullshit anyway that you're the only thing that tethers me to reality, Dr. Shadow. There'd Silo. be
1: nobody to just cut you off and redirect you. <laughs> no. It, it would be no. a whole other show, but it you would could be do a, it.
0: Yes, it would be a very <laughs> different show. Hey, Happy New Year. Happy official...
1: No, we're not allowed to say it anymore. It's two weeks in.
0: Oh, come on. No, come on. I mean, I just got all the decorations down. So it's (laughs) don't you watch
1: Arrested Development? Like you get what four days, seven days. I can't remember.
0: (laughs) I love that show. I love that show. So, yeah, we have a crazy cool subject this week that was inspired by a dear friend of mine, Jake, who I met. Years and years and years ago at the gym here in West Hollywood. And then we reconnected by chance when we ran into each other in Santa Barbara when I was in grad school. What? He is a person that has for years been involved in dog shows. And also recently in the last decade, because we got a lot of years between us, he breeds dogs and is very select, very small, not like a huge operation kennel, but has a very, very highly rated. Dog that he sires out. They're beautiful dogs. They're like really beautiful dogs.
1: Are you a dog person?
0: I am a a human person, but I do (laughs) love dogs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, good to I'm see. actually
0: a human, although people don't think that I am at times. No, right. Dan and I absolutely adore dogs, and yeah. we adore dog sitting. We also, uh, Dan became a cat person after we cat sat, but it was also, like, a cat that thought it was a dog.
1: Sure, those are the best. But,
0: yeah, I'm a huge dog fan. and Like, I have to keep from being creepy when I'm at the dog park that's outside of work, because right. I just, like, I'll, like, ignore the humans and just be fascinated by the joy that these dogs... Are experiencing with each other. It's Isn't just
1: that so funny? your like, joy. Yeah, right outside Scott's government work building is a big old patch of grass that has become like the downtown LA dog park.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's and pretty it's great. A, it, it's fantastic. It's not what it, it's not what the intention was for that piece of land. Right. And I love that the agency is open about doing that. So that's pretty yes. cool.
1: We have always had dogs in my family. Yeah. So.
0: But you've had different kinds of dogs, right? I mean, Ellie is a.
1: Ellie's a bull terrier. Bull
0: terrier. Okay.
1: We just, you know, we didn't go through. Like some big breeder or anything, we just kind of found somebody local that had them. My husband's always wanted one. We had three Dalmatians when I was growing up, so we had you know several iterations of Dalmatians, and then so did Dan. Oh, really? No, yeah, they
0: always had Dalmatians, and the names were always D names.
1: Oh, so we went Disney, we had Pongo and Perdita. Oh. That's sweet. <laughs> and then I owned uh, a Weimaraner as kind of my first dog when I moved out. Madison, do you remember Madison? Were we friends when Madison came home?
0: No. Town? No. Um, They're great, great dogs.
1: Yes, she was. She was just such a sweetheart. Her AKC name was Madison Liberty Blue.
0: So that's your official. That's our
1: official registered name, your registry name.
0: Okay, which is a big thing. Okay. Yeah,
1: we'll get into
0: that. Yeah, we're going to get into that. We're touching on a completely new topic, but it does certainly weave into a lot of the site concepts we talked about before, but specifically in different ways and in ways that are not well-researched. There's only like a handful of research papers about this particular topic. We're talking about crimes related to dog shows, like mm-hmm. violence perpetrated on animals as a result of competitions. And there's a few cases of them. Thankfully, there's only a few. They are terrible. They're absolutely terrible. And listen, I would not be surprised if this show actually has more controversy than a lot of our other shows. One of the reasons is, is that people can get a lot more angry about issues regarding their animal companions because Mm -hmm. we can be disinhibited in that way, Mm -hmm. because we feel very protective about the animals we care about. And that can even extend into your life view about what our role as animal caregivers and protectors are on this planet. So I get it. This is controversy. We've got very strong opinions about dog shows and dog breeding. This episode was suggested by my friend. He was the one that turned me on to this world because I don't know anything about it. I mean, I barely know the surface level of it. Competitive dog shows. And it is surprising how horrible these crimes are that have come out of them. So we want to make some very specific distinctions here about the overlaps of these various worlds. And like I was saying, you know, other than my friend, my only other exposure to like the annual Westminster Dog Show was the wonderful and sometimes challenging mockumentary entitled Best in Show that was created by director, writer, actor Christopher Guest. And his wildly talented ensemble of performers that tend to repeat in his productions.
1: Absolutely. You you just watched it again, right? Yeah, I watched it today while I was doing some work. My absolute favorite of all of his films. Really?
0: Yes. I love it. I think A Mighty Wind, the folk, the fake folk music documentary is a good one. But Waiting for Guffman, they're all amazing.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what what are the challenging parts of it for you?
0: Well, one of the challenging parts for me is the portrayal of the gay couple. I feel like that is the one thing that Christopher Guest does that is a bit annoying to me, is that he does tend to portray these very stereotypical gay characters. Now, that being said, is that everybody is an equal opportunity object of gentle ridicule.
1: Yes. And I'm
0: probably a little bit more sensitive because of that actor's portrayal. Oh God, I'm blanking on his name. So I'm going to vamp.
1: Yeah. It doesn't hold up, (laughs) you know, as well, looking at it today, still great comedy, great improv, a lot of other fantastic characters, but yeah, I noticed it. It didn't hold up as well.
0: So, yeah, the actor's name is John Michael Higgins.
1: Yes, yes. He
0: plays the character Scott Donian, and he is the life partner of Stefan Vanderhoof, played by Michael McKean. And they are great together, and you see that it's a very positive relationship, which is wonderful. Yep. And there are elements that John Michael Higgins does with his character, but it also gets into this thing of, like, it's a straight guy playing a gay character and it's a stereotypical over the top effeminate character. Sure. That being said, there are individuals that does represent a fraction of our society and from a lot of what I've read, especially the article that talks about how do dog show people feel about the movie Best in Show and mm. a lot of them were saying it's this is very representative it's not exaggerating okay. a lot so you know that's probably my own stuff people who are here listening to me I own my shit <laughs> as best I can and I'm always interested in other people's opinion of how I'm doing it right right may not agree but like I can always have it for discussion so definitely
1: yeah. well I am all about stepping into this world of dog shows not something I've given a lot of thought to before I think right Two weeks ago, when I was getting my nails done, the Westminster Dog Show was actually up on the television, <laughs> but I know they have their dirty little secrets. So, oh, yeah. I mean, like, did you know that there's a glass ceiling at the Westminster Dog Show?
0: <laughs> tell, tell me about that.
1: So there was a, a report done by Reuters in 2018 that found that male dogs won the competition 71 times while female dogs have only won 39 times.
0: Yeah, I I did not know that until we started pulling the research on yeah. that. That little nugget blew my mind. Because like I said, there's very little research about this particular issue. Now, that thing that did come up was that's allegedly related to the female's birth cycle and the periods of heat, which don't dovetail well with the rigorous schedule of grooming, training, prepping, and participating in competitive dog shows.
1: Right, which they also say when that comes up that the female dogs tend to be very temperamental when they're having their cycle. <laughs> so, right, I'm not going to touch that. out there, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not
0: going to touch that anywhere.
1: But also, that's a, a breeding age for them.
0: Yes, kind the of the peak, prime right? the
1: the prime age for breeding is the prime age also for showing supposedly. And so, if you have a female dog that you know maybe this gets into some of the problematic nature that is just going to sort of be a puppy machine that might be the role that they have her in instead of showing. So anyway, before we go any further, I think we do just want to give a trigger warning in that I am for the legal part. I am going to touch on animal cruelty to just break that down. So we know what that is. People can kind of see how that folds in here or not. We're going to stay away from details. We could get detailed. We got a lot of information that was detailed. We got, A lot of photographs from our resource that were detailed. It's I know that many, many people who listen to true crime have a stronger reaction to crimes against animals than they even do to humans at this point. So we're not going to go down that rabbit hole, although we will be sort of clinically, again, talking about some of this stuff.
0: Yeah, and if we get to it, we may reflect a little bit on our day-to-day experience and our day jobs. that have to do with animal cruelty without going into too much detail. So, yeah. So we're going to do some term definition. So what was it that you were thinking that dog breeding basically entailed when you came into this?
1: I mean, I didn't give too much thought about it going into it, which again, I'm glad I did. And I I do have more opinions now, and I think it will shape my own behaviors as far as purchasing dogs in the future. You know, you always know that, okay, pet stores are bad, puppy mills, all of that. Stay away from that. But I think I'm just going to give a little bit more thought to it because I feel like with the dog breeding, especially breeding for show, I mean, it's about this weird obsession with the standards of quote unquote beauty and purity. Right. I mean, it feels very like eugenics vibes to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it does. And then because we have the opportunity to, you know, go a little bit further into it, it's it's not always about that. And it's interesting that there's an element of what breeders have done, which is actually preserved and brought some, you know, positive DNA into the lines of these dogs, and they've been very careful when it's done right. So there's a whole spectrum of behaviors out there that I think we'll be talking about. There is some recent research that comes from Australia that was looking at the phenomenon within their country, and this was You know, scientific research used with an online questionnaire. Now, there's a problem with that always. We'll talk about whenever you are doing research that involves self-report, you have to take into consideration whether or not the respondents are actually being completely authentic and truthful in their responses. But this is the way the paper was introduced. It says, little is known about what motivates breeders and what breeding practices they adopt. Less still is known about whether breeders prioritize practices that ensure that puppies are suitable as companion animals. So even though this is a very recent study, it was able to get an online survey of about 275 participants. It did not ferret out a wide range of specifics. The majority of the respondents viewed their dog breeding as a hobby and they continue the practice of breeding because of their love and admiration of a particular type of dog. It was a big relief to me to know that a lot of what came through, albeit in a self-report, like I said, that the respondents sought to produce, quote-unquote, healthy companion animals. The respondents also asserted that they were committed to the long-term health of the puppies that they're producing. And as far as a specific motivation, money was really not initially a huge factor. But the longer an individual stays in that world, money becomes more important for different reasons. So, of course, it wouldn't always because of a profit, and there is a possibility of making profit there, but because if you're breeding animals ethically, there's going to be a lot of expenses. Sure, that makes sense. If you're going to do it right, it's going to cost money.
1: Yeah, but I can see like with anything, if you have some sort of side hustle, even if it's a hobby, you start to probably live within the means of whatever income that presents, and then... You exactly want to keep
0: it going, right? No, that's a great, that's a great example of how there are so many factors that can be involved. The study also found that there was a very distinct delineation between breeders. And I love this quote: those who breed under an industry code and those who do not. So there is published editorial material that indicates that breeders actually do set health and welfare traits as priorities when they engage in these breeding practices. The problem is there isn't a lot of clear research in this area that really drives down into the data. And this is just one small example from Australia as opposed to all of like North America and into Western Europe where it is such a big deal.
1: Right. And there are ethical, what I, this is just my term, but ethical breeders that No, that's
0: exist. actually, that's a real term. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's ethical, ethical
1: everything, ethical porn, ethical, <laughs> that, <you laughs> <Yes. know. laughs> but these people do exist, of course. And the way that I was sort of conceptualizing ethical breeders is that when they understand the science and they start to care less about the purity and more about the ways in which dogs can be bred to be healthy and that breed can have longevity, you know, in a good way. Speaking about Dalmatians earlier, so th- this is a really good example is that the Dalmatians were so overbred, and they have a number of problems, like 30% of them deaf. We had one of ours, which one in three of ours was actually deaf, but they also were so overbred and very specific for a look, right? The spots is like always that they actually lost a gene in their overbreeding that would keep a certain toxin from building up in their bladder. And so their bladders were bursting. This, Ugh. it was awful, like wow. awful, awful deaths. And they could not urinate. And so a geneticist figured this out, introduced a different, but very similar breed, one dog into lineage, and it brought that gene back. So for that lineage of Dalmatians. But the thing is, every puppy that came from that one specific dog that was not a Dalmatian, the regulatory committees would not say that they were Dalmatians. They wouldn't recognize them as Dalmatians, even though you could not tell yeah. from you know, the outside. And here he was really working towards making the breed healthy in the way that they're supposed to be, kind of righting a wrong, if you will. So really interesting stuff.
0: I'm blown away. I didn't know that at all. I mean, I was aware of you know, like the long and tall boys, that sort of body shape of longer but taller, long legged dogs with like the long but thick head, that they have hip problems. And tail problems. And I mean, a friend of mine's wonderful elderly dog in his last years just had that terrible hip dysplasia and he was in so much pain. It was such a sweet dog. It's just, it's Mm. just heartbreaking. But let's get into some more definitions. Purpose breeding is very much a big term in this world. Purpose breeding is where an animal's line is bred to perform at least what is initially to be a very specific task like hunting game, working as a service dog, or herding livestock. And of course, there would be a very specific list of those qualities that are needed. For example, the the dachshund or the wiener dog, as I like to call them, or long low boy, as they're called in memes, was bred to hunt badgers. And their shape is definitively to be able to get into the badger burrow. And despite being very small, they can be very, very fierce with the badgers that they're chasing. So dogs became the word breeds because they were specifically bred for these special abilities that are offered to enhance humans' lives. So Uh, some other examples. I'm
1: having a reaction to that. I'm like, why are we even hunting badgers? (laughs) And foxes and you know, well, but that's
0: fox hunting is a that's a whole different thing. Like that is a sport. Yeah. Badgers were, you know, dangerous on farm property. And could destroy, you know, could destroy crops and stuff like that. So they, they served a purpose. Those two things I don't think we would kind of look so, at in the same so different, way.
1: Different ways to interpret enhancing humans' lives.
0: <laughs> yeah, good point. I mean, other examples would include herd dogs that, you know, are trained and comfortable with nipping mm-hmm. at livestock's mm-hmm. legs. Guard dogs that develop a very clear, concrete, innate understanding of what is their property you know it's it's their territory It's their humans' property, and almost like GPS, like they know exactly what is their area to protect. And one of my favorites is like the development of Chihuahuas. Were bred to keep tarantulas out of the house in Mexico. I guess by barking at them and then trembling until the spiders just (laughs) noped out. But I mean, I love Chihuahuas; they're very cute. I used to think that I didn't like them, and I I lived with one for several years, and like it was the best dog ever. So awesome!
1: You know what my brain just did with that sentence? It saw Mexico. And in my head, I saw Chupacabra, <laughs> but that's also my favorite cryptid. So
0: <laughs> that is your favorite cryptid.
1: It is. I don't know why, because I really think they exist. <laughs> I, I think that's the,
0: that is the one with the least amount of <laughs> anecdotal evidence. I know of all the cryptids you could choose. You choose the chupacabra. My man, God, man!
1: I just went off on a uh, okay. off ramp. Quick, okay. I don't.
0: Yeah, you got to. That's a little more my to ter- my territory. I know, you know. I know. So then we go on to ethical versus unethical breeding, and unethical breeders within this. This paradigm, they are known to have very little concern about the welfare of the animals. They're thought to be primarily motivated by money. These breeders do not consider the complexities of the animals that they are breeding. They breed genetic traits that the dogs can pass on to their litters, much like you were talking about. Breeders like this don't monitor, engage in the appropriate and indicated levels of medical care or safe and appropriate housing. Um, And of course, on the other side of the spectrum would be a responsible breeder or ethical breeder who's not only the opposite of what I just talked about, but also somebody who's informed and stays on top of the most recent and extensive information about the particular dog that they breed. They see themselves as individuals who are helping animals excel in what would be considered a career like showing, hunting, working, or as a companion. So one of the qualities that they purport to exhibit is very good planning of breeds rather than the unethical and unending broods produced by those that don't place the animal welfare first. So basically, they're the Bene Gesserit of the dog world.
1: What? Oh, what is that? Oh my gosh. Or who Bene is Bene
0: Gesserit, like in Dune? They're the women that are like running. They're the shadow government that's running the whole thing. They're guiding the development of human's history of, okay, I can see your eyes blazing over.
2: You're not interested.
1: I know this is very timely because there's a new Dune, but I have to totally cop to the fact that I am a terrible David Lynch fan because I've never seen Dune.
0: Oh, I think Not I I love the first book. I mean, I, of course, everybody I ever, I saw it multiple times when it first came out, and of course, I had to sit with friends and go, "Okay, this is what's happening. This is what's happening." <laughs> like, you're I that don't...
1: guy. No. Well,
0: because it's really hard to understand it's the confusing. first. I mean, yeah. At least the newer versions really kind of make sense. But anyway, getting Sorry. off. Yep. Anyway, breeding versus puppy mills. So the next distinction would be an extension of what I just went over, is that breeding is a careful and well planned activity. And they want to preserve as much as they can, as well as protect a certain breed versus a puppy mill operation that focuses on a for-profit model of producing the sort or the flavor of the month dog breed Uh, that sells for the highest dollar, which is a horrible practice. It's terrible for the dog. It leads to incredible rates of abandonment of dogs. Like the more popular a dog is, people buy it because it's popular. They don't understand the special needs. And then they end up in specialty
1: rescues, Rescues, which,
0: you know, the stats there, at least over, of course, over COVID, there's been incredible numbers of animals getting adopted from rescues, which Mm -hmm. has been wonderful because people have been home. But it would be lovely if we could get to a place where we're not just producing these poor animals. Sure. That then get abandoned as
1: accessories.
0: Right. And look, I, I understand that there's a spectrum between these two extremes we're talking about. But of course, this kind of horrific situation is the one that will get the media attention. And I'm glad it does. At least it definitely does get a lot of attention out here in Southern California when they bust these rings up. I mean it's certainly horrifically newsworthy when yeah, you see true. these and, and I'll watch them. I'll be on Facebook watch scrolling through videos and of course the algorithm knows that I am a complete sucker for any kind of animal video and when you see these poor starving dogs that are rescued from horrific situations, oh, it's just
1: I know. It's just awful.
0: I know. Which, that's another phenomenon too with people that think that they're going to be breeders and they actually have like a predilection to become hoarders and so they get overwhelmed with the amount of animals that are being produced in their house and they can't take care of them and they can't dispose of them. They can't feed them. Right. And, you know, you, people walk in, animal welfare walks into these houses of horrors that are full of animal corpses. Very, yes. very sad.
1: Yes. So the the police department that I worked for we had an animal control department that was literally within our building. So we worked very closely with them and we had a kennel in the back. So when they would do rescues, they would bring the the animals there. And I remember one incident where, I don't know what the situation was, but all of these puppies were basically being, they got wind of these puppies being kept in the bed of a truck with just a piece of plywood over the top. And so they rescued this litter of puppies. And I told my husband, we had two dogs at the time. And I said, Oh my God, there's two more left. And they're so cute. Like you have to come take a look. Let's, let's get one. And so he comes down and we're looking at them and it's a brother and sister and they're both staring at us. And he's like, all right, we'll just take both of them. (laughs) They were just so sweet brother and sister. And we, named them Lenny and Briscoe. So Lenny Briscoe from Law and Order. And they were just, just adorable mutts. And
0: Good for you for so, that rescue. So
1: sweet. But you know, this, I, I think it's, it's very easy to conceptualize, you know, the people who are breeding dogs for money who might not know what the hell they're doing. You know, they're just maybe even just jumping online or maybe it's something that they're just getting information from friends about. But also, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that that's for the regular consumer. But when we pull back and we look at these dog shows, the money-making industry that it is with all of the people that watch, all the people that participate, all of the spectators and the people involved higher up that are turning a blind eye to, you know, some of these problematic things that we're talking about. So that, that's something else that I have kind of spinning plate when we're talking about all this, but the, the BBC did a documentary called Pedigree Dogs Exposed in 2008. And that really rocked the industry, but rocked viewers and, and spectators of what is going on behind the scenes. It did lead to three different independent inquiries into dog breeding and the formation of finally an advisory council over there. So the advisory council on the welfare issues of dog breeding, when I say over there, I mean the UK. <laughs> and the the kennel club is the equivalent to our American kennel club out here, who does all of the registry and lineage checking and all of that. And of course, they they put out a statement. They were very defensive. They were kind of on the, the television circuit after this doc came out. And Basically, they said, you know, they're showing the worst of the worst and there's not very much to worry about here. But it really, really highlighted some of the horrific impacts of breeding for looks, for particularly showing dogs and what dogs were winning and how they had really morphed these dogs into like what one person in the documentary calls mutants. He says, like, this is just a parade of mutants, which... Wow, so interesting. It's harsh. it's harsh. Yeah, yeah. He was he was a little harsher, but the documentary is very difficult to watch. I mean, we'll elaborate on some of these controversies later, but definitely a a warning if you go googling or youtubing this. So I, I have that in the back of my mind. I think I want to switch gears to legal as well and kind of look at the criminality of what animal cruelty is. So we can further this conversation to say like, what is it? What isn't it? How does law enforcement sort of play into this? With this section, Scott and I just want to give special thanks to Detective Molly for being our subject matter expert and providing the us
0: best. She's yes, amazing.
1: Providing us with some of her materials and expertise to talk about this Animal cruelty can be on so many different levels, a lot of different things. It can be the pet owner who is being cruel to their own dog in their home and the behavior is relatively hidden. It could be ritualistic or patterns of behavior with disturbed individuals. It could be other type of ritualistic animal sacrifice, which we'll get to, and all the way up to things we hear about that are pretty high profile, like organized animal fighting rings for profit, gambling, essentially. Or some would definitely agree... The breeding world as well is is cruel in and of itself. Generally, as I was talking about with my own department that I worked for, animal service units in various jurisdictions work really closely with law enforcement. So it could be like what I was describing where we literally had them inside of our police department. Not every jurisdiction has that luxury, so they might have... Their local. Usually there's like a county animal services department that they have a good working relationship with, or they could have a full on task force if they're a big enough department where there are detectives assigned to these specific cases. You get subject matter experts that know how to document the evidence and investigate these crimes, and they have DAs assigned to these types of cases to know how to prosecute them because they are pretty specialized, you know, against all the other crime out there that happens to humans. This is not as prolific as that. and doesn't get the attention because you don't have a victim that can speak. Well, you know, some dogs and cats speak. I, I watch enough TikTok to know that. But so here are, at least for California, some of the most prosecutable types of crimes or categories. So the biggie is aggravated animal abuse or cruelty. That's what the, the penal code section is. So for a felony, that would be any maiming or mutilation or torture of a live animal or the intentional killing of an animal. And the law specifically requires you to be able to prove the acts that were committed against the animal were willful, unlawful, malicious, malicious, and intentional. So that that could be difficult to prove. Detective Molly told us, you know, the proof often comes in the form of the injury, being able to document the injury and it's across the board. It's shootings, stabbings, blunt force trauma and when they're prosecuting these cases, they always have a veterinarian to come in and document the injuries. So really only a vet can document this and determine the injury for a prosecutable case. A misdemeanor of this would be something like starvation or leaving a dog in a hot car to where the potential is death. And it is certainly cruel. Another separate crime would be gross neglect. So this would be the basic needs of the animal are not being met in sufficient water, food, shelter, or things like flea or tick infestation, finding that flies. They have fly bites all over them or other types of insect bites, embedded collars. So you, they just slap a collar on a dog and the dog grows or it's too tight and it just gets embedded into their skin. All of those fall under neglect. There's also a separate category of crime for mutilation, specifically It's just what it sounds like. I'm not going to go into that. And then there's also this issue of animal sacrifice. So animal sacrifice can be done for a number of reasons. And if done for a sanctioned religious or sacred reason, the act is actually protected by the First Amendment. So the most common that they find are... Kappa root, which is a ritual practiced by some Jews on the eve of Yom Kippur, where they take a chicken and wave it over the head of somebody, and then the chicken is slaughtered. Or the other one is Santeria. So for all the 40-year-old white people out there, you can queue up your Sublime CD now. <laughs> it's probably our best reference to Santeria. Um, yeah,
0: there's, it, it's, that's very, I mean, I actually have a, a bizarre experience or connection to that. Santeria hmm. And one of its parent religions, a Yoruban religion, Ifa, also practices not regularly, Mm -hmm. but when you're in a bad space or things are not going, then they will encourage the sacrifice of a chicken or a goat. And I even, I had a roommate years ago that was a practitioner of Ifa. I wasn't very familiar with it at the time. And I remember coming home and seeing like uh, a single Feather in the corner of the bathtub with a splotch of blood. And I oh, was Lord. like, what is going on? Please tell me this was a pillow fight that went wrong or something. <laughs> and my roommate said, well, no, this is, this has never happened before, but I'm in a space. And I was told by the priest that I needed to do this in order to get things right. I was like, okay.
1: Oh, cool. Can uh, you Give me a heads up or <laughs> yeah,
0: well, or be clean better next time. And don't tell me.
1: At least you didn't do it while you were home. You're like, what is going on in there?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: And then we have what we touched on before, the illegal gambling of animal fighting. And the two absolutely most common are cockfighting and dogfighting. So we're going to touch on a a very famous case of that. But of course, we also have a section in our penal code for bestiality, which...
0: It's not allowed.
1: We could do a whole episode on that for sure.
0: Yeah, that would need to be a whole other thing. And also about the legality from state to state about it, which just is mind-blowing about how it bestiality is treated in different states. Like in some states, it's like, nothing wrong, nothing wrong here. We don't really <laughs> care, which is very interesting because it like kind of reflects aside from the. The fact that it's a, you know, a paraphilia on the part of the human that's involved. Right. It's like you're taking advantage of this this sentient being, you know, like it's terrible. Well,
1: and that's the reason that it's illegal. You know, it's essentially forced sexual contact with a living being. And oh man, I, I could go on about the cognitive distortions. I've worked with some clients in that Yeah community, if I want to call it that. I mean, they definitely see themselves as a community.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. And
1: they don't refer to it as bestiality. They have their own terminology and perceptions and ideals of how animals give them consent and how they don't. And it's fascinating.
2: Okay.
0: But we digress. But that we is digress. not the subject of Shiloh, what we're talking about reel here. it back.
1: Reel <laughs> it back. What's very interesting with this is we got a little bit of information from Detective Molly about the crossover with abuse against animals and abuse against people by the same perpetrator, and specifically there was a, a study done in 2017 where eighty nine percent of women with companion animals who were in an abusive relationship reported that their animals were threatened, harmed, or killed by their abuser yeah and essentially, I mean this is about the pet being an extension of that victim and a just another way to harm them or inflict pain and really show power and control over them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's the running theme through a lot of this. Not today's episode, not necessarily to that extent. I mean, certainly not mm-hmm. to that extent, but on a clinical level, all of us look at the world around us as varying levels of extensions of ourselves and how we interrelate with it. But there is there is a, a way that that can become much more predominant than it's supposed to be. And that can lead to challenges in interpersonal relationships when you see everything around you as just an extension of yourself. And people can over-relate to animals as well right. in in lieu of putting uh, work on relationships with other humans.
1: That can happen too. Yeah, I, I thought this was such an interesting point because... There is so much research coming out about other acts of violence and the role of the propensity to domestic violence or intimate partner violence, which is going to be a huge topic of our next episode. But even like when they look at mass casualty incidents, specifically like school shooters, it's a really high percentage of them who also commit acts of violence against animals. Yes. You know, generally cats and dogs. But it's it's a fascinating area of research that is really kind of up and coming at this point. It's like, what is going on in these backgrounds of these perpetrators and looking at the pattern of violence in different ways?
0: Yeah. And you said it earlier, too. It just hits different. You know, it hits us different. I'm I'm a yeah. professional. I've seen a lot of rough stuff in the time that I've been working in this field. And it surprises me what hits me and what doesn't hit me. Yeah. This is something that really hits me. Cruelty against kids cruelty against animals. It just guts me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So probably the most high profile example of animal fighting rings is that of Michael Vick. And to remind you folks, in 2007, Michael Vick was at the top of the NFL. He was the Atlanta Falcons Star quarterback. However, all of that quickly came crashing down when his organized dog fighting operation was discovered and he was prosecuted for that. So I, I don't know if people really know what really happened. Essentially, once law enforcement got wind of this and the feds served their search warrant on this property that he owned in Virginia, they discovered that this property was being used to basically stage house and train pit bulls for fighting several kennels were discovered on the property as well as other staples of big dog fighting rings which i had zero knowledge of there's a thing called a rape stand which is a contraption to position dogs into forced mating. So rape stands were found on the property as well as electric treadmills for dogs. I don't know if that's to like get them in shape. I don't know if that's because they can't go out and walk all these dogs in the neighborhood or someone would (laughs) suspect something. So they're getting their exercise indoors maybe just to keep them conditioned perhaps. But when the property was searched, 50 live animals were recovered and it was eventually confirmed that at least 30 pit bulls had been killed on site. Oh my gosh. During fighting. Uh, I mean, there was bloody carpet present on the property. And it turns out that the operation had been, quote unquote, sponsored by a criminal organization called Bad News Kennels since about 2002. So this was going on for five years. And participants would bring their dogs from all across the country. The investigation revealed that the grand prize winners would collect thousands of dollars. I mean, this was a huge, massive operation.
0: Right. I'm kind of flabbergasted by it because yeah. I'm, I'm now I remembering when all of it came down. And thankfully, there's not a lot of video. I mean, you could find it if you wanted to. It's not, it's not worth watching about how brutal these fights are. They're just incredibly violent. Now, Vic initially denied knowledge of what was happening, And then he tried blaming it on his family before finally pleading guilty and earning an 18-month prison sentence. And, you know, the thing that he says that he regrets most about it when interviewed is mainly that the case affected his chances of getting into the Hall of Fame. And he said, yeah, I know, poor thing. He said, it's going to impact everything, but it was all self-inflicted. I was young. I didn't have any guidance. I don't use this as an excuse. I could have said no. I could have made those right decisions.
1: Hmm. Well, Okay. okay. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, you know, he's come around or whatever. And there's been talk about his quote unquote rehabilitation, you know, just a month ago, actually, December, the last surviving dog rescued from the operation passed Mm. away and his name was Frodo. And he lived a very happy life afterwards, loved by very good people after being rescued. They estimated that he was probably about 15 years old when he passed, but yeah, he was one of the 48 dogs that they got out of there.
0: Well, Vic was released from prison in May of 2009, and then that July, he was conditionally reinstated by the NFL. And then the following month, he signed a two-year deal with the Philadelphia Eagles. He made a great comeback on the football field, although his public image remained tarnished. He finally retired from professional football in 2017. I don't know where you go from that. I will say this. He may have a good PR person that says... You need to lay low for a long time, right, if ever right. you know, like, or just somebody maybe talked to him very bluntly and said you're not going to get any you're you're not going to be getting any opportunities to be on television i mean that you're you're kind of done,
1: yeah, when I, you reach
0: this level of criminality, especially like the abject cruelty that happens in dog fights it is yes, and clearly, yes. like folks, just as a reminder, we're talking about a wide spectrum here we're not implying that like <laughs> Westminster Dog Show is like putting people up to fight dogs.
1: There's not secret fights happening in the basement. There are not.
0: There are not. <laughs> There's no basement at the Westminster Dog Show.
1: <laughs> or the the, the The
0: point is, is like the overarching thing is about the spectrum of how people view our animal companions here yes. in today's society. And that to me is fascinating. Because my experience of the people that I do know that are participating in dog shows, you can have debate about how they got to where they are and what, you know, about the breeding practices, but it's clear that these people really love their dogs. I mean, they are are very much invested in the relationship that they have with these animals and the care that they give them versus someone that will put an animal in a dangerous situation fighting and sees the dog as nothing but an object.
1: Exactly. It's well, like
0: a, a non-sentient, non-feeling object. Or that you get to the point where like, I know you have feelings, you're in pain because you're fighting and you're getting bitten on the neck. And I don't care because I have a chance to win $10,000. Right. Yeah. You know?
1: right. And it's not like other rings don't exist and this was the only one, but I think it's just such a fucked up story for someone with that much influence, you know, with with kids, with other athletes looking up to him to be involved in torturing animals in that way. And why? Uh, right? Like as why? if you needed the money.
0: As if you needed the money like and that's that's something that like I don't even yeah I don't even have enough information to to analyze that, it's also it's somebody that's alive and he's still active and, you know, go live your life and don't hurt anybody. But
2: mm-hmm.
0: how did you get there? That, that blows my mind. But switching gears, let's go to Strictly Dog Shows. The big one that we all know is the Westminster Dog Show. It's been around for about 144 years. And so... Obviously, with the numbers, dogs really took off formally in the Victorian age, so about 150 years ago is when this all started. Modern dog shows first began more than 150 years ago. And here, Neil Pemberton, in an article that we found, really kind of describes the process of how this really exploded as a phenomenon.
1: Yeah. So the first modern dog show that we know of took place in England in June 1859. And as an added attraction, it was taking place at an annual cattle show. Mm -hmm. And it only had two breeds, Setters and Pointers, which of course, would be necessary for the average farmer to have. So it's, it's kind of like an overlapping interest there. But by the end of the century, of course, it had morphed into something completely different as a very popular pastime, particularly with the richer classes who could afford the luxury and time of breeding specific dogs just for the sake of doing so and the competition. And this singular development had significant impact on what we know as canine breeding.
0: So by the end of the 1860s, England's National Dog Show included over 700 dogs and 20,000 visitors that were paying admission to be part of viewing this competition. And as these shows were taking off, Thankfully, a regulatory board sprang into existence to organize rules and the expectations of the competitors and lock down on some of these practices that they were really starting to see how quickly it was happening, but like Hmm. trying to breed without sort of any guidance or anything. So, of course, the organizations had splinters and in-house disagreements leading to separation between various boards because that's what humans do is screw things up.
1: (laughs) Right, right. But from the beginning, judging the dogs was quite controversial. It's funny because when I was watching Best in Show today, my husband walked in and he's like, what makes that person an expert on like judging that dog? (laughs) And that's true. Like what qualifies a person to be a judge and how would you even evaluate their integrity? On top of the issue with finding a trusted and qualified judge, competitors We're now using techniques to enhance the dog's appearance, like trimming the ears, dyeing the coat, or maybe even a quick substitution of animals at shows versus competitions, like, oh, we'll use a double for Trixie because this isn't a competition, while the real Trixie is competing like three states away.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that was really happening. That was happening a lot more. That's why these regulatory boards had to kind of spring into action and (laughs) keep really detailed records. This led to the development of what are called stud books that validate pedigrees and identities where owners could record the lineage of their individual dog or kennel. And so all this rapid development, the idea of the perfect dog or breed, became a real controversy as people started considering aesthetics versus the health of the animal. Breeds were changing and not always for the better. There's a quote from a veterinarian's publication in the late 1880s expressing concern for what would be called lap dogs or dogs that engaged in very, very little physical activity and were just sort of uh, passive little pets for rich, older families.
1: Yeah. Like I said before, basically accessories. This one veterinarian, J.H. Steele, he wrote about a toy dog, quote, whose stomach refuses all but the most delicate morsels artificially prepared, whose limbs can scarcely support his weight, whose natural atmosphere is that of a close and heated room, and who has become petulant and snappish through the enervating influence of his surroundings, end quote. Sounds like me during winter break. Yes. (laughs) Some vets also went on to assert that these pure breeds were no healthier than feral street dogs, which that's a weird comparison to make.
0: It is. But I mean, well, it's also 150-year-old observation. True. So, well, But of course, there will continue to be controversy. And it's clear that overall, the evolution of these shows integrally changed the lives of dogs in society. And that is probably a good thing. I I really do think in many ways it was a good thing. Dog owning for reasons other than hunting and farm work became fashionable. And it then sped up the trend of dogs becoming well-treated domestic companions throughout British society. Mm. So it led to the development of a different kind of relationship between animal and humans, which of course I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that would debate that PETA is of course completely all against this and doesn't believe in that at all. So that's Um, when
1: they went from like a working animal to a companion and part of the family. Right. But also there's this sort of other higher echelon that is involved in this world of breeding and show dogs and all of that. Right. And became
0: something like in an agrarian and hunting society, which you were before, you know, mass production of food. If you were out on a farm, your dog was a part of the family, you know, if you used it for hunting. So there was this sort of understanding that your dog had these duties that it performed. And it was like, maybe your kids played with it and stuff. But Mm -hmm. if you were uh, not in that strata of society, why would you have a dog? So then... You know yeah. it, it sort of morphs into a different level it's not just having the most stately bloodhounds for royalty it's like all these other breeds that could be companions for humans pretty
1: cool. sure yeah yeah
0: if you're thinking about starting a podcast let us tell you about anchor
1: first off it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use
0: Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you
1: listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership.
0: It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us.
1: Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So what, if anything, do we know as far as dog breeders and psych profiles for them? Well,
0: you know, we can really only extrapolate from really scant research of what I've talked about before. There can be an altruistic hobby-related interest or drive, as I mentioned previously, or, you know, there can be, you know, some more less savory ones. People can Mm -hmm. be driven by competition, Now, that would be can also apply to any animal breeder who engages in competition, a passion for the animals and their well-being, as well as the accolades that the winning animal can get. I mean, within that particular division, there would be a spectrum of motivation. And I always think of the really wonderful stage parents that I met when I was a casting director. I would meet some people that were great. And they were realistic with their kids about the business. And the kids said, I don't want to do this anymore. Done deal. Parents were like, nope, we're done. They can play sports or they can be home doing their homework. We don't have to do this. I'm not going to be one of those crazy stage people. And of course, I saw the opposite of it as well. I saw people that forced their kids into doing these things, you know, always hoping their kid was going to be the next little star. Of course, now the difference here is that you can't Directly, verbally, and profoundly communicate with an animal to know if they really want to do this. Although, we would hope that most showers would be pretty invested in the emotional health of their animals as well. And look, there is a very special relationship that develops between animals and their companions where it can seem a little telepathic. And Mm -hmm. maybe on some level, you know, animal instincts, understanding human or adapting their behaviors around it. I think there, there is a level of communication. That's really good. And again, for the shows, these dogs are treated very well. They're not getting like people food treats that are going to kill them like the lap dog.
1: Right, right.
0: They're getting the best of the best food that's really geared towards their health and the shininess of their coat and other things like that.
1: So this um, this kind of is starting to remind me of, you know, any type of performer, because even though sort of the spotlight is on the dog, I wonder if the handler feels like this is a performance for them too. And we've talked about that. I mean, we did like a whole beauty pageant episode. And is there pieces that overlap there as far as the human believing their attentions on them?
0: I think so. Look, Beth, this is anecdotal and I'm I'm drawing a parallel, but I do think that there is some stage mom or pageant parent Mm -hmm. their, you know, method of relationships there. Some people are definitely living out vicariously through a projection of their identity. This is, I'm making a generalization that's only specific to a few people, because I do think that that's actually equally balanced by the level of community that these shows bring. I mean, like, this is a lifestyle. It's like sports parents and sports families, and it brings people together and they're passionate about it and they're coming together for these conventions and they have a network of social interactions with people around the world that are positive i think mm-hmm. i mean like certainly everything points to them being positive but of course you know there's always going to be bad apples in the bunch and that has led to some of the crimes yep you know that we've that we've talked about or not that we haven't talked about yet we're going to give examples but i you know going back to that idea of the stage parent living out vicariously you know i'm referring to a character or a type of individual that is prone to demand special treatment for their child. And this term can also apply to the individual when they've put inappropriate pressure on their child to succeed, maybe for those means of vicarious living. But we're not talking about kids here. We're talking about dogs. That being said, there is a term that we use called anthropomorphization, where we place human characteristics onto animals, and we assume that animals have the same kinds of intelligence that we do. Mm-hmm. And animals are wildly smart, but they're smart in very different ways. Right. Cognitively from humans. So if you have a different cognitive structure, you're going to have a different emotional structure as well. Nothing bad. It's just different, you know? Oh,
1: yes. Yes. And dogs cannot consent to sex. Yes. <laughs> we're going back and we're not
0: saying that we know anybody that would do that. because I don't, I'm just going to oh. be very clear. Gosh, well,
1: you know who I would like to know more about is people who participate in these shows and... Who are not successful in, you know, they're not the top breeders or they're not the top handlers or don't always have winning dogs, you know, because you hear about like these big lineages of winning dogs over and over again, but that leaves a pretty big percentage of people that aren't really successful in the competitions. And I wonder what their experience is like.
0: I do too. I don't think and there's nothing I haven't been able to find anything out there. I mean, it's yeah. sort of I mean, I this do is remember, very
1: niche. Stuff.
0: It is, it's very niche, but I do remember like there was this weird phenomenon in pageants in the south because you had to be able to get to like miss alabama you had to go through all of these you know at least at least one if not more regional pageants to get to that sure and maybe maybe there's a same thing for dogs that you get stuck in sort of the lower level
1: oh i'm sure i think for any sport or competition know. it's
0: i'm gonna try and get like that i'm gonna try and get jake to come on our next get vocal and maybe explain some of this stuff to if us if he
1: doesn't If he's not all mad at us after listening to this episode. Please don't
0: be mad at me. We're we're talking about the dark side. I'm not talking about you, I promise. But that is also not to say that some of these breeders are not driven by money because some of them are. You know, how much a dog breeding business that is specifically just a dog breeding business can make, it depends on the quality of its dogs, how many litters it breeds in a year. A high-end breeder may hopefully only allow about four litters a year. Because although dogs are capable of doing back-to-back breeding, it's very, very hard oh, on on the dogs, and it's not looked upon very well. Uh, but they can sell the the pups for up to twenty five hundred dollars each, and that's not even that's just I'm generally speaking. I mean, there are some oh know, yeah, more that's not a in show demand. Yeah, I mean, it can go up to like thousands of dollars. I mean, yes. I know, like especially right now, French bulldogs are like a big thing, and it's to, even to the point of like. Lady Gaga's dog Oh,
1: yeah, that's right. Like getting put
0: in the hospital after the dogs were stolen. It's terrible.
1: Yeah, I know someone that just flew to Florida to go pick up their French bulldog.
0: Oh, wow. Look, when a breeder is at that level of breeding and maybe even running a kennel, they can break even or they can make money, but the breeder's with great reputations, they can generate a substantial profit without being like a full-time business because they are known to be ethical and responsible, and they've done great work in creating a responsible network mm. throughout this community. The breeders with a great reputation may make that substantial profit, but the majority of people shooting for this will not. You know, Because taking on the responsibility of breeding at this level takes a means owning several dogs, maybe hiring part-time staff, having professional equipment, as well as going to these paid events. So sure. the more successful breeders are those that have been able to create and maintain those strong relationships in this world, where they are then more likely to interact with those that may eventually become customers or through word of mouth, someone says, hey, if you want this particular breed of dog, I know this wonderful couple that does it. They're very ethical. Their dogs are wonderful. They don't have any breeding problems because the that's very different from the puppy mills that the dog can look really great, but basically have a lot of behavior problems because of
1: bad yeah. breeding. Well, behavior and medical, definitely. Right. So looking at really the main problems or controversies with pedigree type breeding Really, it comes down to two big issues, and, and this is where the the Pedigree Dogs Exposed documentary takes a stance and says that when you have this type of pedigree breeding, the pools of breeds are getting so narrow that it causes two big problems. First, the genetic pools are so incredibly diminished that they're essentially putting the viability of entire breeds at risk. So you're running out of dogs to keep making more puppies if you make it more and more exclusive. And additionally with this, they view the close breeding as non-problematic. So, I mean, they even interview this man who runs a show and talks about like, is there any problem with mother to son breeding? And he's kind of like, meh. It doesn't seem to be problematic so far. <laughs> and they ask him like, well, would you have sex with your daughter? You know, I mean, that's a little far and mm. different. Like, I know they're trying to be controversial or at least there is, they're ignoring the issue of this really close breeding. And so they've tried to put, like with some of the online registries where you can go and see what dog you're purchasing and what its lineage is. They've worked out like a percentage to where you want them to be far enough apart in their their lineage and as relatives and so they say like you know below five percent is good whereas like a mother son would be like 25 percent yeah you know that sort of thing so they're they're trying to enact some sort of ways in which buyers can have a little bit of information Mm -hmm. about the the genetic pool um, of the parents of the dogs But they say that the the second really big issue is that when you're breeding for looks, it is leaving dogs with exaggerating features that are disabling. So you have the skull structure of dogs being changed so drastically that they can't breathe or that it's creating folds for infections, the Sharpei. You know, that was one example where people will say, oh, well, with the Sharpay, with the... I forget what type of animal that they would either be involved with hunting or fighting with. And they would say that it's to... It's like channels to have the blood move away from their eyes when they were engaged in this. And then they show you a picture of this dog from 150 years ago, and it didn't have any of that. Like, it just got exaggerated over time because those were the dogs that were winning. Those were the ones that were looking more desirable and different. And then they start creating that. And the the differences in in the skull structure and all of that is just, it's really, really disturbing when you're seeing these side-by-sides.
0: Especially for particular breeds like that. Yeah. You know, there are certain breeds that really haven't changed a lot over a hundred years. And then there are Mm -hmm. other ones that, you know, I think of a lot of the dogs with the breathing problems with the like tiny little restricted noses. The pugs,
1: the bulldogs. Yeah, Uh, yeah, exactly. And as well as like the other medical issues that are happening, not necessarily because of like skull structure or something like that, but the inbreeding is causing these horrible neurological conditions where dogs are just having seizures and in pain. One condition that essentially they said the dog's brain is too big for the size of its skull. Now it's like putting a size five foot into or a size eight foot into a size five shoe, just yeah. awful, awful stuff. Cardiac problems, hmm. you know, the issues that I was talking about, the Dalmatians, deafness, all of that. And according to PETA, The overbreeding leaves approximately one in four purebred dogs with serial congenital defects. So it's been reported in some journalistic investigations that a number of kennel owners whose litters were registered to the AKC here in the U.S., and many of them inspected by the organization... Had been arrested on charges of animal cruelty in the past,
0: oh, so it's sort of catching that's up. Disheartening.
1: It's very disheartening. On one hand, I'm like, good. At least it's being investigated and discovered, and hopefully, hopefully, causing a deterrent. And Mike Chalinski, one of the owners cited in this particular report. He was sentenced to five years in prison on 91 counts of animal cruelty and neglect in 2012. And he had been essentially responsible for 161 severely malnourished Malamutes. Yep. They were in small cages, living off their own feces. And the police reported that when they did the search of the property, seeing dead dogs just stacked outside the kennels.
0: So that's... So, I mean, thankfully, uh, that is very rare.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: That's, that child ain't right. <laughs>
1: yeah. That, I mean, that's clearly, that's better. that's
0: like psychopathic behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Like that just mm-hmm. total disregard. I, I don't have the I words know. to describe it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, despite, look, I know wonderful people that are working in this environment and they have a passion for the care of their companions and there are things that we have to talk about this, like this isn't reflective of everybody in that environment, thankfully. But these sort of horrific incidents really show that it's not a homogenized group of people that are Mm -hmm. engaging in these. There are really bad apples that see it as an opportunity. And clearly that's, that's motivated by greed. You don't breed at that level with that level of carelessness and cruelty, unless you're trying to make money, right? Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a big outlier and rare case, but I think still important to mention. So more particularly to showing and dog shows some of the controversies over the years or sort of juicy tidbits of things that have happened. PETA is always trying to infiltrate and get in front of the audience here in in order to protest and make their statements. And the one in 2010 at the Westminster Dog Show, PETA members Dana Sylvester and Hope Round, right when the Best in Show dog was announced and right when the dog is to be put up on the pedestal and presented with the trophy, they walked onto the ring and held up signs and one sign said mutts rule. And the other sign said breeders kill shelter dogs' chances. So they, they of course, were charged with criminal trespass. And PETA said the women acted on their own accord, but they absolutely supported their actions. So this stuff happens from time to time. In, it does. In these and types of arenas.
0: I think it's also important to look at, you know, PETA does not have completely clean hands themselves. You know, they are an organization with a perspective on things, and that is their focus, but they don't always practice what they preach. And they have a very hardcore line that they are pushing all the time. I guess within an organization, you have to push the hard line in order to stay relevant. But right. look, the reality is that while they have some excellent points and goals with their organization, they are really very flexible in how they define caring for animals at their adoption centers. So their adoption centers have had staggeringly high euthanasia rates as compared to other facilities. Mm -hmm. And they state on their website that this is due to the poor condition in which the animals are delivered to them. Like they're saying the worst of the
1: worst come to We them. get the
0: worst, of the worst, but there's no, I can't find any research to back that up. Like, so are they bringing you the worst of the worst because they're assuming you're going to heal the animal and get them back Perhaps. out to a happy field? I don't know, but sounds like they have a little bit of cleaning to do on their side of the road as well.
1: Yeah. The other issue is sort of these elective beauty modifications on dogs that are being done very, you know, prevalently are the the docking or the removing of dogs' tails and cutting of their ears, which is banned in the UK and Australia, but we still do it here. Some U.S. breeders actually have spoken out against the practices, but they say their dogs can't win at the big dog shows with the natural long tails or the floppy ears, they're just not being recognized by judges.
0: I completely get that because my floppy ears prevented me from being a successful <laughs> runway model. I know. Oh, no, I should have done I'm something be, about that. I should have done something with my floppy ears. I am glad you're saying that because I, I don't get the practice. I get it feels like it's just something that's done just for tradition. And probably, you know, my my friend Bob has had Dobermans and right. they are these amazing, lovely dogs. And, they, he, you know, they've always had their tails and their full ears, these lovely, sweet, warm brown ears that are so lovely. And all I could Aww. think is, like, as good as it looks in a picture aesthetically with the pointy ears, like, why would you do that? Like, but
1: why do we value I, that? Yeah.
0: I know. I mean, I like Star Trek, but I'm not going to go out and have, <laughs> you know, Spock ears done.
1: Well, so we why would we do
0: that to animals?
1: Removable ones. I know.
0: Like, I know. I know. Well, I do have the glue-on ones. I'm sure they're here somewhere <laughs> with my tiny hands.
1: Jeff Schaefer, who's the vice president of the American Rottweiler Club, and actually the husband of an American Kennel Club judge, Mm -hmm. agreed that there's absolutely a bias against natural dogs on the competition circuit. And he said, quote, it's worse in some breeds than others. When the first Rottweiler with a tail showed in 2006 back in Florida, there was almost a riot. People were crazy, cursing, yelling, screaming, all kinds of threats. It was ridiculous. There were Facebook wars, and friendships ended over it. End quote.
0: Okay, so that does tell us. I mean, that's not necessarily when he's talking about cursing, screaming, yelling. We don't know if that's with the breeders or the show people. That's maybe the obsessive fans that come to these things. You know, so that could be plenty of dog owners that are just obsessed, like sports fans, right?
1: Yeah, could be.
0: You know that I don't want to put that all on the breeders if we don't know, or the showers if that, we don't know that they're the ones that are doing it. But that is really uh, strange,
1: right? For people to lose their minds over it, yeah, I mean.
0: about something like that. Instead of looking at like let's let's expand this, but that's all people dig their heels in very much, yeah, and I know, you know, like this is tradition, this is the way it's always done. And you bite yourself in the ass when you do that too much. Anyway, another case example, a vintage one, because we always love our vintage examples, is in 1895 at the New York Dog Show, eight toy dogs, Yorkshire Terriers, Japanese Chins, and two Cavalier King Charles Spaniels were all found either dead or in their last throes of pain as they died. All dogs died after they were poisoned the morning before the competition. Poisoned? Poisoned. How terrible. And also, like, a painful poison, not like, I I mean, I don't know if there's, like, an easy poison you can give a dog or give anybody, but, like, this was brutal. Their deaths made the front page of the New York Times, and the headline read, Eight of Mrs. Sin's pets killed by a miscreant at the dog show jealousy believed to be the motive. The veterinarians who tried to save the dog's lives found that they had been given strychnine, which is very strong poison for vermin control and it's odorless. It has even been used in the past as a, that's medicine, but in, you know, very, very tiny doses, a quote from that day's edition of the New York times stated later in the day, Mr. Sen seemed to have an idea of who poisoned his dog, but he refused to say much about the case last year at the show. There was a lot of bickering among the owners of the pet dogs about the awarding of the prizes in these classes. There's always some jealousy, and Mr. and Mrs. Sin have been very fortunate in showing dogs that were better than those of other exhibitors. One exhibitor last year, it is said, had written several handwritten threatening letters to Mr. Sin, which that gentleman has now handed over to his lawyer. This piece of news was given to the detectives to work on, and Mr. Sin is confident that the fiend will be caught. And the Kennel Club and the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals will prosecute. It is generally thought that someone was hired to give the poison, and the $1,000 reward may induce those in secret to tell who the principal was. And unfortunately, the killer or killers were not found.
1: Oh, interesting. Well, things don't change much in 100 or so years, because mine is also a cold case. (laughs) And... You know, sounds like we might be able to say is the same motives here, but the UK had a canine murder mystery on their hands too in 2015. Now over there, Crufts is the premier dog show in the UK with a very long history of its own, stemming back to 1891. Over you know 20,000 competitors from 43 countries, it's had its own controversies as well. But it's a much different dog show. There's sort of the traditional part, but there's also this showmanship type categories to it too. Have you ever heard of heel work to music?
0: No, I have not.
1: So there's there's like an agility competition, sort of like a little obstacle course, and then there's heel work to music. People, please YouTube this immediately.
2: <laughs> Is it
0: like the dog dancing? It's competition? dog
1: dancing. Oh,
0: okay. Yes, I I, I saw that because they did an, a, an episode on King of the Hill about it. That was oh, hilarious. My.
1: God. So I didn't know it was a real thing either. I saw an episode of Sam and Cat on Nickelodeon because my kid loves that about dog dancing. And these are very elaborate performances, usually. So the handler dresses in the theme of like whatever the music is and whatever the little showmanship piece is about and the dog. Anyway, uh, I'll let you guys. We'll put up some links. Yeah. But mainly the kennel club, which I said before is like the AKC here in the U.S. And the organizer of the Crufts event was very much criticized after the BBC program came out that Pedigree Dogs Exposed for allowing the types of breed standards that they do, the judging standards and breeding practices, which, as we have said, has really compromised the health of purebred dogs. And in the U.K., This led to a lot of sponsors dropping out and the BBC even dropping coverage of the event, which I guess if they're going to make a documentary, they got to kind of put their money where their mouth is and also not cover the event that they're, you know, poo-pooing over there. Anyway, in March of 2015, murder struck the Crufts dog show. Jagger, who was an award-winning Irish setter, beautiful dog, had won second place in his breed and had returned home to Belgium with his owners. His brother, Fendara Pot Noodle, had taken first prize. Cool. So shortly after returning home, Jagger became ill and the vet was called, but not before he died a very quick yet painful death. hmm And when the autopsy was performed on really this otherwise very healthy three-year-old, they found cubes of meat in his GI tract that had had poison carefully folded inside of it. So someone stuck a piece of poison in there, wrapped it up in meat. So clearly it's murder, right? So his owners were stumped. I mean, the, the dogs had been watched like a hawk for the Mm -hmm. entire trip. The only time that they said that the dogs were alone was when they were up on their respective stands or benches at the event where the handlers weren't right there. And soon... Other reports started coming out of other dogs who had been at the show getting sick as well, but none died. Interestingly, though, Jagger's owners refused to think that it was another competitor, which I thought was really interesting to sort of their, their dedication and their alliance and their identity with this group, that they really just couldn't let themselves think that the industry had come to that. They thought it was more of like someone from the outside sabotaging, a spectator, a protester, but not a competitor. Which that's the first thing my mind goes to. Like, you know, taking out the kneecap of the competitor. Yeah, totally pulling a
0: Tanya. Yeah,
1: totally, totally. So that happened. And then a couple weeks after the show, a winning Rhodesian Ridgeback who had taken first prize in his breed, was also back in Belgium. He was from there as well and his owner was taking him out on a walk and he was shot multiple times from long range. Somebody with a rifle shot this dog while out on a walk and killed him.
2: That's that's awful.
1: Assassination is happening. This Owner also refused to believe it was connected and said this must have just been a mean hunter. That no, hates sorry. dogs. Not
0: buying it. I'm not buying it.
1: Right? Yeah. But back to Jagger. So his toxicology specimens get shipped off to Ghent University and were examined. The Kennel Club then puts out a report, which is the people who sponsor all of this. So they're just, this is who the report's coming from. I'm just being super, super skeptical. But they basically say that the findings showed that. Quote, Jagger, the Irish setter, tragically died after ingesting fast-acting poison banned in Europe. They had to put that in there. Some 28 hours after attending Crufts, timelines indicate that poison would almost certainly be eaten in Belgium. So they're saying because of the time of the quick-acting poison takes that he was already gone and out of the UK by the time he would have had to ingest this. Okay. So the, the poisons... That were used were designed to kill pests and take effect within hours. And they're saying basically it could only have been consumed when he was already home. They went on to say, we must conclude that it is inconceivable that he could have been poisoned at Crufts on Thursday, March 5th. And when the dog departed from the show, that's when it probably happened. So they also claim that, you know, the other sick dogs that you were hearing about, they could not be located or confirmed, that none of those cases ever came to fruition. So it all kind of fell apart. And both officials in Belgium and Britain declined to investigate, basically saying the findings show that this might not be malicious. Um, I, or not malicious, not linked to the show.
0: I, I'm i sorry. Like, And now I, it's a cold I, case. If I.
1: I think there's a serial dog killer in Belgium is what I think is going on.
0: I think that there, and I think there's some kind of weird cover up for some reason. Like, why would you deny that? That just doesn't, doesn't, that all seems very skeevy to me.
1: Yeah. And, and the, the owners like, you know, of course they know that it's poison and they're not saying that it, it, wasn't murder, but they were saying, we wonder if this was actually meant for the other dog, the prize winning dog. Because I think at one point they kind of switched spots when they were up on the stand and that's the time that they said that they were alone, not under their careful watch. So I don't know, but all the way going back to your case and every one that I read about poisoning at these dog shows, no one ever gets caught. Well, But you have 160,000 spectators, you have So many people, but these dogs seem to be on pretty good lockdown.
0: I think that they're, I mean, clearly they're on really good lockdown. I will say this, that dogs are like toddlers, unless they're highly trained about food, you know, and there are some people that will train, like, you know, you don't eat unless you you get the signal that you're able to eat. But, you know, dogs are also like, once again, about that idea of animal cognition and animal intelligence, dogs are sneaky, and if dogs they like dogs. know where the treats are, you know, yes. so maybe somebody tossed something, but yeah, it's, I think that there's more going on. There are other things about dog shows that can connect to other parts of the shady world of betting. You yeah. know, do pe- people place bets on types of shows that they do? As oh, well as races? Sure. The yeah. answer is yes, and there's an ongoing following of the Westminster Dog show for the betting world, of course, and it indicates that it is possible at least for that kind of monetary gain or motivation. Now, I don't know if there's necessarily any kind of linkage about go take this dog out so that the one I split odds right. on is going to, I mean, or whatever the term is, I don't even know.
2: It's
1: like <laughs> sports.
0: I don't know anything about the term, sorry.
1: Split odds on, I love it.
0: Uh, like stocks, bets, I don't know. <laughs> but it is an illustration of the phenomenon being perceived as a worthy of speculation and manipulation.
1: Oh, people that's bet very on anything. clear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, again, from our psych perspective, and a dark observation is that the perpetrator would be another competitor, meaning that an individual that presents as loving and devoted to dogs, but is totally willing to kill another dog
2: Mm -hmm. in the
0: pursuit of a competitive title. You know, Detective Molly was the one that brought that up. She goes like, she's not a psychologist, but she's so good as a detective. And she was like, that is like the weird little mental twist is like, you're in this environment, in this milieu, and you supposedly care so much for animals, but you're totally willing to take another one out. There's some real pathology there, and that's a real disregard for life. And it has like what we would call those flavors of the dark triad that would include harm to animals as previously described. Mm -hmm. And also this detachment from animals that aren't yours. Right. Because if you don't have a narcissistic extension to anything but the animals that you're taking care of or owning, quote unquote, then you wouldn't have any regard for that other animal's life, right?
1: Right. Or like, I mean, I jokingly said, like the Tanya Harding issue, but if your desire to win overrides... The piece of your brain that should be saying you don't hurt another human being, that fits with those flavors.
0: Yeah, sure. absolutely. And there's a great media example of this. I can't help using this as sort of a parallel. Highly recommend this for any of our audience members that have never watched this. But it's a movie version of an actual true crime. The movie is called The Positively True Adventures of the Alleged Texas Cheerleader Murdering Mom. And this was about a woman played Brilliantly, by Holly Hunter, a woman named H- Wanda Holloway. She tries to hire a hitman to either kill her daughter's competition for cheerleading or more chilling, killing both the cheerleader and her mother. Wow. Wanda assumed that with the other two of them out of the way, that there would be this open path of success for her daughter. And again, that's an example. It's, it's, it's a very dark comedy, but it is based on the true story of what actually happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's going back to that lack of regard for life, unless it's yeah. an extension of your identity. Right. I think to that see your
1: daughter win or your dog win.
0: We have this idea of the relationship that we have with animals and there's clear indication from the most recent animal behaviorist research about animals actually having emotional connections to their human companions. Sure. That's, that is completely there. Yeah. But it does lead to other areas of discussion because various societies and cultures throughout history have had very different views of the roles of animals as Pets. And I don't like to say pet. I like to say companion. I feel like it's more respectful for, for the animal. But, you know, I grew up having pets and there are some animals in sort of like you look back in Egyptian society where a lot of the deities were anthropomorphized combinations of humans and animals, and Mm -hmm. there were even animals like Bastet, who was always personified as a woman with a cat's head, and that, you know, cats would be mummified and, and treated with great respect because they were seen as these sort of deities.
1: As they are, clearly.
0: As they are, and they know it too. <laughs> but that's n- not been consistent throughout history. It certainly is not in there. In some cultures that view animals as like in, in gang culture, pit bulls are not seen as pets. They're seen as a as a status symbol right. to show how badass I, I am, and I, like, and they train sometimes their dogs to be aggressive, and those dogs are incredibly strong. They are not as dangerous as they have been. Uh, promoted to be there's research that shows they are not we've Mm
1: -hmm. had lovely lovable teddy bear pitfalls right
0: and I was really wrong about that I remember having like being very concerned for a client and her infant son and she got really impatient with me and a little testy, rightly so, because I was expressing a, a very ill-informed perspective on them having a pit right. bull in the house. Totally well, I, ill-informed, totally own it now.
1: I, I think, you know, you when we were talking about like dogs eating anything, we still have to remember that dogs are animals. And no matter how well you have a relationship with your dog or how well you think you have it trained, they can also go back to very animalistic tendencies and I think I would yes. you know everyone needs to be cautious with a dog around a toddler we don't need to say which breeds or you know stereotype in that way but I think some people do have a false sense of security sometimes around some certain animals and it's it's happened like with police dogs yes super well trained you know oh he's such a great family dog and then he ends up ripping the arm off of you know a toddler in the house yes. and brutal. it's just brutal yeah
0: well That's another thing that Detective Molly educated me on when we had to take a pet into protective custody and put them in the specialized, you know, temporary care where you're evaluating whether or not this dog can go back to its owner. Mm -hmm. She educated me on that it is not good for them to stay in these isolated kennels for extended periods of time because all of that socialization that they gained through human contact, that can be lost very quickly. And they can go very much back to exhibiting some more defensive, protective, feral qualities. I see. I had no idea, but that's like a very big thing. And clearly because of the, the specific work that she does, she's more... Understanding of that, I think. Also, it's just here at the end. It's important to remember that we have had a monumental shift in our understanding about animal cognition and animal intelligence. Like I said, um, we need to stop judging animal intelligence through a rubric of comparing them to humans, like uh-huh. saying things like dogs can be as smart as a three-year-old. Well,
1: yeah. Why are we comparing apples and oranges? We
0: we should not be comparing that at all because dogs can do a lot of things that a three-year-old will never be able to do. we well, working ne- would with never.
1: totally different systems and senses. And exactly. And that.
0: there's the wonderful documentary, My Octopus Teacher, which I think oh, is fantastic. Beautiful. A very, very different type of intelligence and an interaction they have. But we have a lot of assumptions about animals that has shifted over thousands of years and, and needs to shift and continue to evolve. Because animal intelligence is viewed as a combination of skills and abilities that allow animals to live in and adapt to their specific or even specific changes in their environments. They form social groups, and specifically, when we're talking about dogs that are essentially pack or clan animals, mm-hmm. it's more and more understood that dogs see their human companions as uh, a leader or the head of their pack. Sure, and that's not a bad thing. That's that's a good thing. But you know, we need to make be very careful about the assumptions we make. Even on top of that, one of the things that I have as a wackadoodle theory is as, as much as we anthropomorphize animals, we are also closer in our modern cultures to animals. We train and have more expectations regarding them. And as such, are we breeding them Are picking certain dogs and, or other animals that reflect back the qualities that we want? Mm -hmm. So we may be outside of breeding kennels or breeding experts. We may be doing that anyway. And we do have some proof that there are evolutionary movements in play with dogs that now have movement in their eyebrows and facial muscles that were never present Mm -hmm. in wolves because they have learned to reflect back like that cute puppy dog look because we respond so well to it. So I think that's fascinating. There are some wonderful videos online about Bunny, the talking dog, that has learned to use the buttons. And it is, I don't want to say frightening because it's not frightening. It is uh, paradigm shifting to watch a dog look in the mirror, look at the reflection, and then go over to the buttons and ask who that is. Is that bunny? Is this Uh bunny? And I'm I'm paraphrasing how the question is framed. Oh yeah. And there's controversy about whether or not there are some detractors out there saying that that's, you know, that's not what the dog is doing. It's just learn to use the buttons, but it's communication
1: where it's never been at that level before. And it's pretty incredible. I say we just respect animals and stop trying to play God with them for especially this purity factor, this beauty factor. And hey, thanks for the introduction into the wide world of dog shows.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I'm surprised too. And hopefully my my dear friend will still be speaking to me after this
1: <laughs> Yeah. because we,
0: so. ta- we had to talk about some of the darker things. But
1: It's all my fault, Jake.
0: <laughs> everybody, thank you so much for tuning in this week. We've got we're some now, big things coming yeah, a up. Yeah,
1: great. Get vocal this weekend. Yeah. So it's probably going to be a longer one because we have a lot of research. There's a lot of history with this case we're going to cover, but I think you guys are going to absolutely find it. Fascinating.
0: Yeah. If you were on our social media and you saw a pic of us in the last week, we'll yep. be talking about that a lot. We will not be covering in this Get Vocal, this particular dog show issue. It will be a completely different issue, but we will devote further time in the future to coming back to this subject to talk about it because I know our listeners will want to.
1: Yeah, I want to hear about the case that you worked on. I think I know which one you're talking about and have have Detective Molly on if she'll come on.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. So everybody have a great week. COVID is still out there. Get vaxxed, get boosted, be careful. And um, please be safe and take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Absolutely. We'll see you next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions.
0: The LA Not-So-Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube.
1: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at L.A. Not So Podcast, on Twitter at L.A. Not So Pod, and on Facebook at L.A. Not So Confidential.
0: Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash L.A. Not So Podcast so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
1: Thanks for listening and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch.
0: Thanks for listening and join us next time.